Hello everybody, thank you very much for joining us today. This is Graph Stuff FM, our very first live episode. So a little bit quickly for those of you who are wondering what's Graph Stuff? So this is a new podcast that we've put together and we're mainly going to be talking about graphs from a developer's perspective. So we're going to be your co-hosts, Lula Zarevich and Will Lyon. And just very quickly, for those of you who are wondering, this is not a replacement for the podcast that Rick Van Bruggen does. So this is very much us looking at more of the developer point of view with regards to things around graphs and what they're encountering around that. So the kinds of things we'll cover in this series will be graph native under the bonnet, for example. So how exactly does Neo4j work? Thinking processes around graph modeling. So what kind of decisions will you go through? What considerations? What about the Neo4j platform universe or the various bits and pieces in there? What do they mean? How do they work together? And so forth. And this is going to be something we are going to be doing on a regular basis. And if you would like to be notified as episodes come through, do check out graphstuff.fm and you will be able to follow us in your favourite podcast provider. So the main driver behind today's episode is all about how do you get started when you put together a presentation? So what is the whole journey behind that? And a lot of this is being driven by our upcoming conference, Nodes. So I'm going to hand over to Will, who's going to tell us a bit about Nodes. Yeah, so Nodes is the Neo4j Online Developer Expo and Summit. This is coming up on, I think, the third edition of this. This is basically Neo4j Online Developer Conference. The date of Nodes is June, I think, 17th uh, is when it will be, be live for everyone to join around the world. But the call for proposals uh, has been live for a few weeks now, and the deadline is April 5th for the call for proposals. So if you're interested in sharing your graph story with the world, definitely please consider submitting a conference proposal. And we'll talk a bit about sort of how do you structure that conference proposal? Uh, what, what sort of motivates you for thinking about putting a talk together? How do you come up with ideas? So we'll go through through all of this to give you ideas of sort of how to structure your proposal. But then also what we want to talk about today is, okay, you've submitted your proposal, it's been accepted, and you now have you know a month, two months, a couple of weeks, whatever, to think about putting your talk together. How do you approach that? What are some things that Lou and I have, have learned, hopefully some of this will be useful for you. So if you're interested in learning more about nodes or submitting your proposal, go to neofj.com slash nodes. We'll take you there. We'll also link in the show notes the, the link to the, the call for proposals and, and all of that. Cool. So let's let's get into it. Maybe to kind of kick off the discussion, Lou, uh, I, I thought a fun question to start with might be, do you remember your first conference talk? Oh my goodness. Yes. So this was quite a while back in a different lifetime. And it was a scientific conference, an academic conference that I was presenting at. And it was all about 
detecting birds through wing oscillations. So the idea that you could try and identify different bird species effectively based on how they flap their wings. And it was quite interesting because there's lots of people there. And it was a bit of a daunting one as well. So, so the first time I did this, it was a bit daunting. A, because I get a bit nervous. I, I've had practice now, but I got a bit nervous. I was in front of a large group of people. I was talking about a subject where some bits I was quite familiar, but other bits I was like, whoa, you know, th th there is so much about this that I don't know. And always had a bit at the back of my mind going, oh my goodness, what happens if somebody asks me a question that I can't answer? So it, it was it was an interesting experience. It was a fun experience, but yes, I, I remember it well. What about yourself? Yeah, so for me, I, you know, the the first sort of conference talk and, and the the meetups sort of blur together. And and I, I'm not sure exactly which was first. I, I've gave some talks at some of the local meetups and and there's like a local community conference as well that I, I've spoken at for a few years. And I, I can't remember exactly in what order, but for me and in, in sort of when I think of my exposure to public speaking more broadly, the, the thing that was much more impactful for me uh, was I spent a year teaching introduction to computer science at my university when I was working on my, my master's degree. I had a teaching scholarship or whatever you call that. And this, I think, you know, was really quite a challenge for me to, to sort of give a lecture, you know, three times a week about, uh, you know, intro to computer science. And it, it was a pretty large class. So it, it was very intimidating for me initially. And I remember just being very overwhelmed initially and, and very scared. Uh, it, was, it was in the forestry building, which was like across campus from the computer science building. I think we didn't have a room big enough or something. And and just going over into the forestry building was uh, intimidating for me at the time. So anyway, this was, I, I think, like a really good uh, experience for me. And, and this really informed how I think about things like connecting with the audience and you know making sure that I'm engaging my students. And, and a lot of these things were really sort of formative for how I think about public speaking. Um, so anyway, so, so thinking about, yeah, sort of first public speaking exposure, that's kind of what I, what I think about. It's a great experience. It can definitely be scary to begin with, but it's a fantastic experience. And what would be really good now is to talk about why would you sign up for this? We, we talked about being a bit nervous or a bit frightened or worried what people are going to ask us, a huge audience. Why, why would you step forward and do a conference talk? I think there's a lot of reasons, right? I think that especially for, for developers, you see a lot of these very technical conferences out there and people sharing, sharing knowledge, sharing what they've learned, you know, helping others build new skills. And I think it's, it's seen almost as sort of a, a step in like a career development phase, right? Like being able to present technical material to your peers, uh, sort of sharing something that, that, that you've learned. So I, I think you can, you can really benefit from a professional perspective by, you know, sort of being able to 
hone and, and exercise that sort of professional technical communication, right? Because I think this is this is an important skill to have just day to day, right? Is being able to to communicate about technical topics with your with your peers. So I think that that can be a big motivator. I, I think for me, really, the the biggest motivation is sort of the the learning process that you know, they, they say that you really haven't learned something until you can teach it to others. And, and I found that this is, this is really, really true. Like if you really want to learn uh, something yourself, try to teach it to someone else and, and giving a conference talk really gives you the opportunity to sort of go through that exercise. So for me, almost that's like the, the number one sort of motivation. I think another element as well is personal development. So you've touched on that with the idea of how do you reinforce that you've really learned a subject and understand it. But there's another element as well, I think, when you present, which is if you do have a phobia of meeting new people or what happens if you're a group of people that you're unfamiliar with or you have an idea, an opinion, and you feel a bit nervous about sharing it, this is a really great way to be really structured about how you approach that. and getting that exposure it's a really great way to just keep doing it over and over and it gets easier over time and that also fits in with the career development and being more at ease at being able to present your ideas and thoughts to an audience and it, it works on the personal level as well as the career level as well as being able to reinforce that learning and I think that's really important and another element as well I think it's really important to promote your brand so especially now as we're ever more connected and it's not just here's my CV and this is what I've done. I think it can be very important as well to demonstrate your thought leadership, where your skills are and being able to be confident in a presentation format to be able to do that really helps define your brand and who you are. And if you don't want to do it for yourself, again, it's something really useful to define the brand of your company. Or if you're working on a project within your company, being able to maximize the awareness of what you're doing and how you're doing it and why you're doing it. So I think there's many reasons as to the benefits of why you should go and do a conference talk. So I guess another element that might come up where somebody will go, OK, you've sold, you've sold it to me. I, I get the value of doing a presentation, but you know what? I'm absolutely terrified and I'm, I'm terrified because I get nervous of presenting to people I don't know how to come up with ideas for a conference what if I don't absolutely know my subject inside out or the absolute the, the terror the fear of fears what happens if somebody asks me a question that I can't answer there and then so what kind of approaches have you come across, do you use, you've got experience in to manage these kinds of terror points? Yeah, that's, that's really common, right? I, I think there, there's a saying that, you know, more people are afraid of public speaking than they are of, of dying or something like that. I, I have no idea if, if that's true or not, but it, it's certainly, it's certainly something that is scary the, the first few times you do it. Right. And I think it's, Fundamentally, it's something that, from from my perspective anyway, I just kind of had to had to practice doing. And once you've done it a few times, then uh, a lot of that sort of 
nervousness and and terror goes away. At, at least I, I, I've found. And and for me, you know, going back to to teaching a class, the the first few lectures I gave, I was I was very nervous and and like yeah, like terrified to to get started. And and I found you know that okay, giving giving a lecture to a group of 60 or 70 students three times a week, like once you've done that a few times, then it, it starts to sort of smooth out and, and get easier. And, and you sort of enjoy a lot of the the feedback that you're getting and, you know, engaging with your audience is like a really rewarding experience. And, and so once I had done that a few times, I would just think, well, okay, I've, I've done this before, like, you know, this, this is nothing that I should be sort of uh, nervous and, and, and terrified about. So I, I think it, it's, you know, something, think of it as, as sort of an achievement to, to overcome and, and just sort of some, some practice to get in. And, and once I think you've start to experience the benefits of, you know, seeing folks that are engaged and seeing some of that feedback is, is really, really reinforcing uh, and, and I think can be, can be a big help. Absolutely. And I think the important thing there as well is just keep doing it. The more times you do it, the easier it gets, the more comfortable you will be, the more confident you will be. It's with, with many things in life, the more times you do it, the easier it gets. And whilst you don't have that experience yet, whilst you're quite new, practice, practice, practice. I think I read somewhere you get some seasoned keynote speakers will spend something like three, four times the amount of time that they will be delivering their speech to how much time they spend practicing it. So if your keynote is 20 minutes, you could easily be spending up to two hours plus the number of multiple times you are practicing it over and over again to you're comfortable. So that is a key thing to do so that you know your content inside out. So it's not a surprise when you're delivering it. So that's one thing that you're certain about in your environment. And the other thing as well, it's your story. So even if you're nervous and you're starting, it's your story. You came up with it. You know it well. And just tell it and you'll find that you'll start to settle into a groove. And then you may even shock horror, even be enjoying the process because people are there to hear your story. So, uh, yeah, many things you can do to counteract that. I guess another biggie one around that is what do you do if you're asked an awkward question? There's sort of the the questions that you have no idea how to answer, right? Um, a lot of questions are, are actually comments uh, and and maybe maybe feedback. So I think f- for those kinds of, of questions where someone is, you know, maybe making a comment or, or a statement that, you know, is rather them trying to share something rather than, than digging deeper into a subject, I like to to sort of reinterpret their, their question and comment as sort of the question that I would like to answer that's somewhat related to, to what they're discussing, right? And, and there's there's lots of examples of this, but I, I think it's it's really important to remember that during the conference presentation and, and even the, the Q&A uh, that you're speaking to the larger audience, right? You're, you're not sort of, uh, it's not beneficial for the larger audience necessarily to go on some tangent that you 
maybe don't know anything about or, or something that, that's maybe only relevant for the person asking the question. So I, I think as you're thinking of how to answer these things, try to think of that context. Like does, if it's something that you don't know anything about, like I think maybe the audience doesn't either, right? And, and they lack that context. So I, I think taking a step back and, and maybe saying, okay, well, well, at a higher level, here's sort of the context around the question that you're asking. And I don't really know anything about the specific thing that you're asking about, but here's how I understand that it fits into the larger context and, and sort of lay things out that way, I think is, is actually like really appreciated for others in the audience watching who, who maybe don't really understand, you know, maybe the specific thing that the person is asking about. So sort of rephrasing, taking a step back, um, setting, setting some context, I, I think can be a helpful way to, to just sort of rephrase and, and think about things. But also fundamentally, if someone asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, like it's perfectly reasonable to say, I, I, I don't know the answer to that. Like, let, let's move on to something else. There, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I've, I've done that. I've, I've seen people uh, do that. And, you know, that it's from the audience perspective, it's, you know, more helpful for them to uh, have you identify something and say, hey, that's not something I'm an expert on. Like, let, let's move on to something else rather than to kind of waste their time trying to, I don't know, trying to to make something up. So perfectly fine to to say, I don't know. Let's uh, let's move on to something else. And it's also perfectly fine to say, let's exchange details. I can come back to you on that. So if that's something you want to explore, you don't know the answer, but you can look that up. You know how to look that up. Then Again, that's perfectly fine. And touching on something as well you said there about the audience, it does happen where somebody asks you a question, you don't know it, but sometimes it's okay to ask the audience because there may be somebody there who can answer that question. So you've got so many options there, you can engage the audience. And again, if you have that person who asks that awkward question, you have the option as well to turn it back to them and say, well, what are your thoughts on this if it's something if they're they're somebody who's trying to give their view so you have a a number of ways to answer it but if you're thinking oh this is too hard again it's perfectly okay to just say I'm not too sure I can get back to you on that as the easy opt-out options you've got many different ways to to tackle that fun fun topic okay so Hopefully, we've put you all at ease when it comes to thinking about why you should do a presentation and how would you tackle some of those awkward situations if you're a bit new to presenting. So the next one is coming up with that killer idea that you're going to do a presentation on. So how do you approach this normally? I think there's a few sort of fundamental ways to come up with ideas for conference talks. I, I think there's sort of, you know, looking at some of the interesting problems you've solved, some of the challenges that you've overcome recently, um, like wanting to share some of that, I think is is a great source of inspiration for conference talks. Because if it's something that you've learned, uh, something that you've struggled with, some challenge that you've overcome, some application that you've built, some design pattern that you've learned, that's evidence there that it's something that will be of interest to a larger group, right? So I think that that is that is a really great sort of area. There's also sort of the area of I sort of know something about this. Um, I'd like to learn a little bit more. Why don't I just sort of 
um, challenge myself to learn enough about this to be able to give a conference talk about it, right? This, this is sort of goes back to a point we made earlier about being able to teach something to someone else as sort of the ultimate form of learning it yourself. And so I kind of like to joke of, of this idea of conference-driven development that, okay, once you sort of have committed to giving uh, a conference talk about this, you sort of have this forcing function now of, of like making sure that you actually can, you know, build this thing and uh, give a presentation about the topic. I, I think that there's a fine line here though be- between sort of choosing something that, you're not really as realistic to dig into and go into the depth of building a conference talk around it versus something that you have some tangential familiarity with and and it's something of interest for you, right? So there's sort of a a fine line there, but I think that can be, you know, just sort of having that conference talk. If, if it's something that aligns with your professional goals, right? Maybe you have an OKR with your, your, your team. uh, So a, a goal of something that you need to build, something that you need to dig into anyway, from a technical perspective, if this aligns with that, then that can be a great motivator for you to sort of dig into that topic in a lot more depth. Absolutely. And the other one can be you see a common problem coming up over and over again. So let's say you're active in a community and you keep seeing the same question come up over and over again and you go, you know what, I think there's a gap here. Maybe this is something I can put together an educational talk. So you want to get your community friends have that understanding about how to come over that. So that's another great way you can come up with some ideas for a talk. Another option too is have a look at past talks. And this doesn't have to be necessarily around the FJ. This can be any technical talk or any non-technical talk. Is there something that inspires you? Is there a speaker that inspires you? What is it that inspires you? Is it because they're solving a problem? Is it because there's a specific call to action that they make? Is there something there that helps trigger some thinking around what you can do as as a result? So is there something you can follow their style or you follow the way that they discover a problem and how they solve it? So that's potentially another way of finding some ideas for inspiration. So let's let's talk a bit about the process of submitting a proposal. Most conferences have what's called a, a CFP, a call for proposals or call for papers. And this is basically, you know, the conference putting out this open call for submissions, for proposals, for conference talks and speakers. And every conference does it a little bit differently, but I think there's a sort of a, a common structure and a common theme to the CFP. So let's maybe spend a few minutes talking about, you know, how do we how do we write a good proposal? What are the the basic components of the proposal? How do we make it compelling? Because I, I think this is this is kind of the first step, really, of sort of going down that path of giving a conference presentation of you know making sure that it's compelling for the organizers of the conference to say, hey, this looks really good. Let's accept this and and put it in the, in the agenda. Because I know conferences get a lot of proposals um, and a lot of times it can be difficult to sort of sort through the proposals and, and identify the 
the talks that um, are really going to stand out and that the organizers want to have in their conference. So I think it is important to make sure that your proposal really does stand out and, and makes it clear like who you are, what you're going to talk about, and make it clear that this can be a compelling talk for the audience. Um, so those are the things that, that I think the, the organizers are thinking about as they're going through the CFP. So let's let's talk at maybe just a high level, like what are the individual components of a proposal? Um, and then maybe talk about sort of how to structure each one of those to make it sort of compelling and, and stand out. So the, the basic components of every CFP is uh, a title for your conference talk, uh, and then a description, an abstract. So the difference between a description and an abstract, and, and each, each conference does this a little bit differently, but typically the title, this is like a one-liner, um, you know, overview of Cypher query language, right? Something like that. A description is something that typically that the conference will put on the website or in the schedule. So this is like a couple of sentences, uh, something like in this talk, we take a look at the Cypher query language and how to use it for writing basic queries, something like that. Then the abstract is typically a bit more detailed. And, and sometimes this uh, the abstract is not uh, shared publicly. A lot of times this is just for you to share to the conference organizers. Here's how I'm going to structure the talk. Here are sort of the main bullet points um, going into a lot more detail than what the description does. So that's sort of how I think about it. Um, and again, this, this can be a bit different, but I sort of write the description for the prospective uh, attendee who's sort of trying to see, is this a talk I'm interested in going to? I write the abstract sort of almost as like an outline of what the talk will be. And then the, the fourth component of a proposal is your bio. So who are you? Uh, what experience do you have? You know, what's your job? Why, why are you sort of qualified um, to give this talk? So those are the basic components. I, I think then it's important also to think about how to make each of these compelling um, and sort of how do you structure these? So do you have any thoughts on that, Leo, of sort of how to make your, your CFP compelling? I think the easiest way to make it compelling is to be really clear in your mind who your audience is, so who do you want to come to your talk, and be very clear about what do you want your audience to go away with. So do you want them to be enlightened? Do you want them to be going away thinking about something, something that's triggered, triggered a thought function that they've not considered before? Do you have a call to action? So what exactly do you want your audience to go away with? So who's your audience? What do you want them to go away with? What would good look like? And I think that goes a long way towards driving what your title is going to look like. Because if the title doesn't give a good view of what a, what your audience is going to go away with, then you keep keep iterating until it does. Same idea with the description in the abstract. So does it give you a clear view when you look through that? what kind of audience you want and what you want them to go away with. So just, I think just having those two questions and you keep cycling through and you just keep checking, I think will get you a long way there. 
So let's say that your proposal has been accepted. The organizers have said, yes, this, this sounds like a great talk. We, we want you to come speak at our conference, either, either online or, or in person. Now we need to think about actually building the talk, right? And, and hopefully we, we have some time uh, you know, ahead of us to, to prepare. We, we don't need to sort of rush this. Um, I'd say this is probably an important thing to note is, is the more time that you can sort of take to start building out the talk, I think uh, the less stressed you will feel and, uh, and ultimately uh, the higher quality the talk can be. So if you, have, uh, if you have a couple of months, if you have a month, if you have a few weeks, like whenever you sort of have gotten that acceptance uh, from the conference organizers, yes, we'd like you to come speak. Uh, I would say start building your talk then, or you, know, you, you can even start before that if it's something that you're, you're truly passionate about. But anyway, let, let's talk a bit about that process of sort of how do we build the talk. And, and I think building the talk is a good way to think of it because there are several important components to the talk, right? It, it's not just sort of the presentation itself. It's sort of the assets around that, right? Are you, are you building a demo? Are you creating slides? Um, you know, what is sort of the, the delivery mechanism that you're going to have? Uh, are you having like visuals and diagrams? Uh, is there a GitHub repo that you're sharing along with this? So th- there's a lot of things to think about. Um, just sort of to to kick off the discussion here of building the talk. In, in my in my view, I think that the narrative or the story is actually the most important fundamental part of the talk. And everything in, in my mind is sort of secondary from that. So like, sure, of course, it, it needs to be technically accurate, having uh, a working demo, having nice diagrams and visuals, those are all important. But fundamentally, you're telling a story here and, and figuring out what that narrative is, f- for me, is my sort of fundamental starting point. So w- what I like to do is I, I think there's a very important sort of creative exercise and, and sort of creative connection between sort of visual thinking and, and sort of the the tactileness of, of like drawing something out, um, almost like, like mind mapping. And so for me to sort of figure out what the narrative is, I, I do a, a couple of different things. One is I, I sort of start with a few bullet points of what are the key takeaways? So, so like Lou was saying, when, when you're writing that proposal, think of, okay, who the audience is, what are the key takeaways uh, for them going to be? And, you know, sort of write that out. And that sort of forms the, the fundamental sort of heart of the narrative. And then I, I like to go to a whiteboard or, or on paper and then just sort of diagram out uh, sort of the the different components, the different sort of pieces of the talk that I want to share, right? And, and sort of what sort of sets the context. Um, so for me, um, it, it's a very creative process to find that sort of core narrative, and and that really drives a lot, um, a lot of my process. But uh, how about you, Lou? Where, where do you sort of start with the the building of the talk process? story there always has to be a story and in my mind there's a number of reasons for this I think a story helps your audience 
because there is a journey here, there is a lesson to be learned. And you, you look, you think across history, stories are the best delivery mechanism for that. How do you deliver a learning through a story? Another really big reason for it is it really helps you to think about how are you going to put together a presentation? So a story innately gives you structure. Maybe it might be helpful to to share an example of, of what we mean by, by a story and, and narrative to, to kind of put some some context around this. So I'll, I'll share an example from a, a talk that I worked on recently for the, the CDJS conference. Uh, and the, the title of the talk was um, A Graph Data Love Story. Uh, and the, the sort of the narrative uh, is, okay, there, there are these two technologies that, that sort of come from fundamentally different worlds. So this is uh, this was a talk about uh, GraphQL and Neo4j and, and how to use them together and, and the benefits you get from using them together. And, and so the story is, is sort of, okay, these, these two technologies, okay, one is sort of you know, loved by front-end developers, GraphQL. Another is, okay, a database that you know, is serving a very different need. But when we sort of take these two technologies together, they each have something to offer the other uh, in, you know, in the terms of applying uh, a type-safe schema to the database uh, and from Neo4j being sort of optimized for the type of nested queries that you often have in GraphQL, right? So, so sort of telling the story of, okay, how these two technologies, what they are independently, but then when we use them together, here's sort of the, the benefits that we get. Um, and that's maybe not, you know, not a... Uh, super complex story, but that's like the the fundamental narrative that flows uh, through the talk. So, so when we're talking about sort of a story and narrative, that's the that, that's the sort of thing that we mean. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I think certainly from a tech talk perspective, the story structures tend to be quite similar. So, I'll pick the example I used for my notes presentation last year, and again, sort of similar process was. I tell the story and my story was I was exploring a data set. So this was the wine data set for those of you who are familiar. And then we talk about the next point of the story, which is a pain. I came across a pain. My pain was how do I deal with uh, dirty data? And then we continued the story of going, well, okay, so I've, been, I've carried on my journey. My pain is this dirty data. We then continued the story where we talk about the options we explored and how can we solve this. And then the story has a happy ending, which is we've successfully cleaned it using these methodologies. And if anybody else finds themselves in this similar predicament, they can use the, the fables, the, the lessons from this fable to apply to their problem. So it doesn't have to be a big, intricate story, but there is a story there to drive it. And the nice thing about having a story is it's so much easier to deliver. You don't have to memorize what you put on some slides. You can have image slides. You can have diagrams with no words on there. Because you know that story, you can talk, you can talk to your story, but it's difficult to talk to a slide of facts, for example. So it, it helps engage your audience. It keeps it interesting. It makes the process of making the presentation interesting. And it makes it so much easier to deliver. It's it's win, win, win everywhere. So I guess the next bit from here is how do you tighten up that story? So we've talked about 
generating the ideas. We've talked about having a story to help drive that. How do you work through the approach of getting it a bit more polished up and making making the story tight? I think a large part of that, of developing the story, is this this sort of visual thinking exercise, right? So I I, I go to go to the whiteboard or uh, lately I've been using um, a drawing app on my iPad for this, and almost just sort of like drawing a mind map diagram of, of sort of okay, what are, what are the key points? So I I have my sort of takeaways as, as sort of the center, right? So I have like my my three three to four bullet points of like the takeaway for the audience and and. We'll talk about the audience in a second. So that's another like really important component. But uh, I've sort of decided on here's sort of what I want the audience to get out of that, and and that's sort of the core uh, piece of this sort of this visual thinking diagram exercise. And then I sort of end up drawing sort of it's almost like a graph, right? Sort of like nodes that are the uh, sort of parts of the. Uh, narrative that I want to convey. So in, in my sort of near for J and GraphQL graph data love story talk, right? Like the, the key components uh, of the narrative are, I want you to understand the benefits that you get from using these two technologies together. And, and I have three or four examples. And then I expand on that a bit more in, in this, this sort of diagram and, and sort of see how, uh, how those pieces fit together. Then I start to think of, okay, well, how, how is it sort of best to convey this point to the audience? Should I do this um, in a code example? Should I do this as a diagram? Should I do this as a demo? And I think it it really depends on what it is, but I, I think you can clearly start to see where one of those formats is better than the other. I, I think diagrams and, and visuals can be, I think, a really important piece of building the talk because uh, that's the visual aid for your audience, right? Like you, as Lou said, you know how to sort of tell this story uh, verbally and having some visual cue to show how the pieces fit together uh, while you're talking about this can be a very helpful uh, visual aid for your audience. And and everyone is, learns in a different style, right? Like some, some of us learn best from visuals. Some of us uh, learn better from sort of hearing, uh, hearing something explained to us. Some of us are more experiential. So I think it, it's more important to sort of address those different aspects throughout your talk. So you want to have like the compelling story and narrative. You want to have some visuals and diagrams that explain how the pieces fit together. And then I think it's also useful to have code examples and demos where appropriate that are going to be uh, more compelling for the experiential learners to, to sort of take away from that, where they, they sort of need to see this, this more concrete example. Um, and ideally, if, if there's a GitHub repo or somewhere that those folks can then go uh, pull down and, and play around with to actually like really cement those. So I think that that's an important thing just to remember. And, and again, this, this maybe goes back to the concept of uh, empathizing with the audience a bit to really recognize that folks learn in lots of different ways and try to incorporate those different elements into your presentation that will address the the different ways that uh, different people learn from those different styles. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about the audience. So how do you target your 
presentation to your audience? What are you looking for? What approach do you use? Yeah, that's a good one. And and, and we had a, a question on Twitter from uh, from Nathan Smith here. How, how do I judge the technical level of the audience of my topic, right? Which I think is is really important. And that I think is is sort of a fundamental thing to think about upfront as you're structuring your talk. Um, sort of what what do I expect my audience to know? Sort of who is who is my my audience? Who am I speaking to? I have kind of a a default persona almost that that I think of when I when I structure my talks, and that persona is me immediately before I didn't know the thing that I'm talking about, right? Um, and and so looking at my background, like I've you know worked as a software developer for a few startups, sort of like you know full stack sort of thing. So like not too deep in any one area, but, um, you know, more sort of experience with, with breadth and, and how the pieces fit together. So that's, that's sort of how I think of, of my audience. And then, and then I sort of refine it from there, but maybe that, that is helpful as, as sort of an exercise to, to think about your audience. But I think also a lot of conferences have more formal ways for, attendees to sort of self-select into uh, into the talks. So there's often uh, sort of tracks at conferences where it's clear, okay, this is the track for sort of like the high-level architect. This is the track for the sort of uh, data scientist. This is the track for the front-end developer, right? And uh, if you sort of know ahead of time what these tracks are going to be, and oftentimes this is part of the CFP process where you're you're specifically indicating what track or like multiple tracks that you think your talk would fit in, that can be really helpful for you as a presenter to understand, okay, well, here's sort of the, the structure that the conference organizers are setting out. So uh, I, I sort of know what audience I'm speaking to based on who's going to be interested in that track. And then also a lot of conferences will also have sort of a level. So this is a beginner talk. This is intermediate. This is advanced uh, and, and sort of use that to then structure your talk based on the audience that you expect would be interested in that. So, so to give you an example, I gave a talk at GraphQL summit uh, last year, no, two years ago. Uh, and the title was something like, um, GraphQL resolve info deep dive. And okay, so that you're talking in the title, you're talking about a very like specific piece of GraphQL implementation. You're, you're saying this is a deep dive. Okay, so this is not going to be a beginner's talk for someone who's completely new to GraphQL. So I, I think I would try, try to allow your audience to self-select uh, for sort of uh, what group they are. Okay, if we're talking about the GraphQL resolve info object, well, I have to know what GraphQL is. I have to know that this is this is probably something to do with implementing GraphQL backends. So maybe I'm uh, targeting like backend developers who are at least intermediately familiar with GraphQL. So do anything you can to allow your audience to self-select, uh, and then that can sort of help you to inform the technical level um, of your audience. Absolutely. So there's two, two takeaways there. So number one, have a look at what the conference is asking for. So if the conference has made it explicit that it's going to be beginner con level content, or if they've made it explicit, it is advanced level content, then you've been pre-told 
what the audience level is. If you've not been given that specific instruction, then you pick your audience. So you decide which audience you want to target and then you do the material around that and please help your audience out as as you're talking about there. Make it clear in the title or the description who exactly that talk is for and then the audience can self-select whether that is the right talk for them or not. So many options there. And we've talked a little bit about the different ways you can use content for your talk. So we talked about the use of visuals, diagrams, people may put in video, sounds, demos are also helpful. So looking at the different ways of engaging with the audience. But the one thing I'll say very quickly about slides is try to be sparing with them. So that's the one thing I'll say. And I have noticed you get a lot of conferences where you have a lot of slides and I came from this old school view that each slide should be a minimum of two minutes in length. So I think just a quick comment on that, that less is more. And this is where diagrams are amazing. So if you're looking at a big block of text, and this is where it all comes into the whole idea of the more time you can spend to prepare, the better. And I'm just highlighting this because you do see at some conferences you get a slide and it's just full of text. And ask yourself, can that be represented as a diagram? Can you bring a theme together? Is that information that you want your audience to sit there and read? Or do you give them a picture and provide them with a link? So that's one thing I will mention quickly there, because you do see it a lot. And it's an easy way to lose the attention of your audience if they suddenly are not listening to you anymore because they're quickly reading a slide of text. So that's one thing I quickly wanted to flag. Is there anything that you would suggest as well as sort of things to be aware of when putting together a presentation for an audience? I, I think that that's a really good observation about the slides. I, I, I think of slides as sort of they're providing the basic structure for the talk, right? So I I I, I like to have these sort of section subheading slides that are, you know, just now I'm talking about this aspect, right? As, as, as making it sort of clear of how to structure the talk. And then in between those, I, I like diagrams that, that sort of show how the pieces fit together. Your point of uh, sort of linking to source material to, to references is, is really useful. I like to, you know, if there's some blog post or page from documentation that has the information that I'm talking about, rather than sort of duplicating that onto the slide, I will just sort of put a link to that um, on the slide as well. And, and you know, I, I think that that's really important as well to think about uh, how should the slides be treated after the talk, right? So, so another uh, question we got uh, from the chat here is, should there be handouts how pretty should my, do my slides need to be? If I think they're not pretty enough, how can I make them better? Uh, so th this, I think, is is drawing on a, a couple of points here that are really important. One is like, yes, think of your slides as handouts that someone can refer to later. So I, I like to use Google Docs for all of my slides because it's very, very easy to share. So I'll I'll make them 
public. I'll put a short code bit.ly link um, at the beginning so that anyone can just go to go to that link uh, at the beginning and they have access to the slides with links and, and sort of treating it as reference material for them to sort of take away and, and go home with. But then also, of course, like you're using your slides during the talk and, and you want them to sure like like look nice you want them to be functional i i I probably uh tend more to the functional aspect than uh than making sure that they're that they're pretty and and visually compelling mostly because i i don't sort of have a lot of expertise uh or, or sort of skills in that area but i know some folks that will use something like fiverr uh so they'll they'll sort of do an initial pass of, of maybe a diagram or the slides and then go on to like Fiverr or Upwork to have someone with more visual skills do like a more in-depth, uh, high quality version of, uh, of the visuals or even just sort of touch up the slides in general. That can be, that can be one option that, that I've seen folks do. I think another important aspect when we think of sort of how to structure our talk and then sort of what components to include in it uh, is the question of to include a demo or not. So I, I think that there's lots of different viewpoints here that there's, um, there's advantages and disadvantages. I think oftentimes in a technical presentation that, you know, having, having at least some code samples to sort of put things in a more practical context is useful. Um, oftentimes what, what I find myself doing is building a demo application that is sort of like a, like a reference architecture, reference application uh, for, for the talk. So, uh, so a while ago at, I think this was at the Kafka Summit talk, um, Dave Allen and I, who, who, who gave a talk there, we built a fraud detection application uh, using Neo4j and, and Kafka and, and sort of graph data science and in uh, a grand stack application to build sort of the, the front end dashboard. And so we built this thing and, you know, there are a lot of pieces to it and, and, and it worked and, and sort of we, uh, we used it mostly though, as like a reference, like here's, uh, here's the GitHub repo for all of the pieces. You can, can pull it down, uh, and see how it works. Uh, it's not something that we sort of walked through each component of it live during the talk. Um, we just wanted to show sort of like, here's at a high level, how the pieces fit together. Um, if you want more detail, go find the code on GitHub. So I, I think it's, I don't know, it, it's kind of a balance there because um, you, you have limited time to present your demo. You want to make sure that you're not wasting time trying to set up configuration if something breaks, fixing it live. Um, so I think some some combination of kind of screenshots uh, and sort of like minimal uh, examples that you want to show, but then also making sure that the code is accessible for, for folks later on is sort of how I like to approach demos. And I think another question we've got here, we're starting to work through some of the Twitter questions that have been coming in, is should I try to be funny? I have a strict rule that I follow uh, for this one. I, I think it, it really depends on your personality. Um, I think that if you are, uh, you know, have that personality that is, you know, really engaging and you're comfortable sort of being funny and, and telling jokes and, and connecting with your audience, that can be a great way for your audience to engage with you. Um, I 
I don't think I, I sort of have that personality. I, I think I, I typically have kind of a, a dry sense of humor that, uh, that can come across as, uh, you know, unintended sarcasm and whatnot. So I, I typically don't try to be, you know, funny throughout the, the talk. I, I think, I think there's, there's nothing wrong with that though, if, if that fits your personality, but I, I would say don't, don't try to force it. Um, so the, the strict rule that, that I have is I, I limit myself to one joke per conference talk. Um, and you, you may not realize this because may, maybe the, the joke is not obvious if you've seen some of my talks, but there's, there's at least one joke, uh, somewhere in all of them. Um, and this is, you know, sometimes it's like a, like a meme slide or, or, or something like that. Cause I, I think that, you know, fundamentally like your, your audience is interested in, in having a good time and connecting with you. And, and of course, like humor is, is a great way to connect with them. I, I don't think that it sort of uh, makes your, makes you less uh, authoritative of a speaker um, or anything like that. So yeah, if you can, if it fits with your personality, sure, go for it. Yeah. Be yourself. If you're, if you're one to, to be a joker and crack a joke, then be yourself. If, that is not your personality. I think you walk in dangerous territory if you try and be an anti-pattern of yourself. So be yourself. It's your story and you're telling it with your true self. So I think let's, we're slowly coming to time. So I think let's talk a little bit about what happens after the presentation. So you've put in a lot of work. So a fair bit of work goes into a corporate paper. Significantly more work goes into creating the content. And then a load of work afterwards goes into practicing for the session and getting ready. So you've put this big investment of time into this, this presentation process. What do you do next? I think that fundamentally, think about how you can repurpose the content, right? Um, if the talk was recorded and and now a lot of conferences has moved have moved online and the talks are on YouTube like be sure to share share the recording with your network um, certainly find the the YouTube channel for the conference and and sort of share that uh, with your network but also think about how you can convert that content to other formats uh, could you turn it into a blog post could you turn it into um, a tweet thread um, the, the sort of thing, uh, because that you have made an investment in, in sort of building this. And I think certainly you want to be able to, to share it, uh, across different formats other than just the audience that, that will have seen your talk. Right. So this, this, I think is, is really important not to, not to treat it as just sort of a, a one-off, uh, thing that you've, you've sort of built and, and thrown away, but really use it as a base to, to build, uh, on top of as well. And coming to the point you made earlier about some of the reasons why you might go through this process, why are you doing a presentation? If you're using this as an opportunity to learn a new subject, then go share it with the world. You've made that investment. You've done the talk at a conference. And even in the unfortunate event, if you don't get accepted, you've still invested a lot of time into this project. So are there meetup groups you can go to? So a lot of meetup groups, depending on your technical area would love to hear that story so can you contact me to groups as well online in person when we're allowed to do those as well you have got many options to share that and the thing is as well 
this is a journey. So maybe if this is a project you're working on, you're going to have new installments. So that becomes now the next the next stage that you can then go off and do a presentation on. So you've got a lot of opportunities there to keep reusing and repurposing that content. So it's not the case if you do it once and that's it. There is a lot of things you can do with it afterwards as well. For sure. I I, I think that, you know, we're we're coming close on time here, but we should make sure that we answer any questions um, from the chat that we didn't get to. I think I, I see one here uh, from username second uh, asking, how do we prepare for the talk for the technical part as well? Any recommendations um, and how long do we usually take to prepare? I, I think this is the, the, the second part of that is I, I think really important. I, I think we touched on hopefully some of the, the first parts there in your question, but how long do you spend sort of preparing your talk? I think is a really interesting question. Um, Ludi, do you have any sort of guidelines there on, on the time you spend preparing for a talk? That's a great question. The rule of thumb for me will be that the, the less familiar I am with the subject, the more time I'm going to be spending preparing for it. So if it's something that I'm really confident I know inside out, I if it's a 30-minute talk, I could easily be spending maybe a day or so, two days if it's brand new slides for that. And then I could easily be spending maybe a few hours just going over the presentation over and over again, doing any iterations and changes. And that's something that I know really, really well. If it's something I'm less familiar with. So I, I mentioned earlier about if it's a subject that I'm not familiar with, I will practice the content over and over again so that any curveballs are thrown at me. That's one fewer area of errors to occur come from. But even if I'm familiar, a lot of time goes in. So easily we're talking brand new slides, two and a half days at least. What about yourself? I like to spend a lot of time thinking, right? So getting back to the, the concept of the narrative and the story and, and developing that, I, I like to spend a lot of time just sort of thinking about it and, and sort of visualizing this and, and sort of working through different aspects, almost almost like I'm imagining uh, what the talk sort of sounds like and, and what the key points are. Um, so I, I like to spend a lot of time sort of in the background, I guess, just sort of thinking about this and, and going through that process, even before I, I start to prepare anything, um, either on paper or, or the slides or, or the demo. Um, so that, that process, you know, is sort of going on in the background, you know, ideally for maybe a couple of weeks as I'm, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about this in the background, but then when it comes time to, to actually sort of prepare and, and sort of build the materials, it really varies. Um, it, 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 it's so hard to say if it's, if it's something where I've already built like an application or, or something and I want to pull out some of the interesting aspects from the project I worked on that that's a lot less time. Cause I, I have a lot of sort of the, the source technical materials to build from there. Um, I, in terms of sort of how to build up like the, the confidence, uh, in, and sort of not be overwhelmed with, you know, not having enough to talk about or, or not feeling completely confident there. I kind of like to build lots of different demos and, and like technical things that I often don't end up having time 
to present during the presentation, but having just sort of having those there in the slides as, as a reference or a pointer to say, okay, so we didn't get to talk about this, but for more info, here's a, uh, an example application on GitHub. Here's a demo of, of this aspect. So in terms of sort of helping to prepare for the technical parts and, and building up the confidence that you uh, have sort of enough material to talk about, I sort of over index on having that technical content there and, and oftentimes end up not even not even using it. But I think it's useful to have uh, sort of as a follow up for your audience to dig into uh, more after the fact. And, and then also that then gives me a lot to sort of repurpose for content for blogs and tutorials and, and whatnot. So anyway, that, that, that's sort of how I think about it. Absolutely. And I think before we leave it there, I'm going to raise one of the comments that have been said by Zafis, which is a friendly reminder to look at the cameras. Absolutely. So we have been a little bit naughty during this session where we've probably been looking at our notes, but absolutely, when you are delivering a presentation, either online, make sure you're looking at the camera as much as possible and in person, try and connect with the audience. So keep scanning and looking at eyes. So that is absolutely a very good point, well made and taken on board. Yeah, and, and I think that's, you know, that, that's important to, to remember as well. Like no one, no one is really an expert on giving these, uh, these kinds of presentations, right? So uh, we're just trying to share what we, what we think is, has been helpful. Um, hopefully, Hopefully talking through this was was sort of helpful, but take everything uh, that we say with a grain of salt, right? Because this, these are things from our experience that work, but not necessarily will, will work for you and, and not pretending to be experts in, in this domain. Absolutely. So I think with that, we're going to call it a wrap. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. So as a quick reminder, we are live now, but this will be available as a recording later. So you can find this along with following episodes of our podcast on graphstuff.fm. And without further ado, thank you very much for joining us. Cheers, folks.